I'm not doing a care because I want to consume the wealth this business is going to create for me, right? Uh, I'm doing it because I think this is what I have to give to the world. And uh, I want to do it to the fullest expression. Um, so uh, I re- totally recognize that is a, that's a luxury, like that is true wealth, right? Um, to be able to have all your other needs so satisfied that uh, you can choose to, you know, express your why uh, in that kind of um, uh, framing. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. We're here today with special guest Adrian Schauer, which, as you will recognize from the last name, there might be some family relation there. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Adrian is the CEO of Care, a company that does uh, healthcare software, which he's going to tell us about a little bit more. And he's the co-founder of the Madeiro Fund, which is a charitable organization, uh, which he's also going to tell us about shortly. So Adrian, just give us a little introduction. Tell us about who you are and what you do. Great. Yeah, I'll tell you the uh, slightly longer version of that. Um, so... Uh, I did engineering in school, um, got really specialized in photonics just in time for the dot-com to kind of wipe out that, uh, that industry. And so I started my career at uh, Rogers doing new product development. And then in 2004, I co-founded a mobile software business uh, called Vortex uh, with a friend that I played basketball with growing up. And we bootstrapped that business out of the basement into a, a decent-sized uh, startup. From there, we spun out um, uh, a product we'd incubated into a separate company, uh, which then we grew and ultimately uh, sold in 2012. And then in 2014, um, I wanted to re-scratch my entrepreneurial itch. Uh, and at that stage, uh, founded Care, which is a company that helps home health care providers uh, run their business and deliver better care in the community. And so Care grew from, uh, from that uh, kind of seed in 2014, uh, seven years later now, we're 500 employees, um, you know, just raised a good size round from Al Gore's invent- uh, investment fund uh, generation. And uh, it's been a very interesting journey to date. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about Madeiro as well? Yeah, so that's um, uh, something that's uh, kind of grown in prominence in my life recently. Uh, so when I proposed to my now wife, uh, Jillian, back in, uh, I guess that would be 2011, <laughs> I want to say. <laughs> I better make sure I get that. Don't mess this up. Back in 2011. Uh, so Jillian's a pediatrician, uh, has a big, he- uh, big interest in global health. Uh, she was actually working in Kenya that summer um, with HIV uh, positive patients in Eldoret, uh, just north of um, Nairobi. And uh, so when I proposed to her in lieu of a diamond ring, I proposed uh, by creating a, a foundation uh, called Madeira, or which became called Madeiro uh, 
uh, to basically leverage mobile technology, which was my domain, uh, to help improve health outcomes for women and children in low and middle income countries uh, with a focus on Africa. Um, so we, you know, we started that, uh, funded a few projects, and uh, then in the latest financing round, we did it at Alicare. Uh, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to uh, sell some shares and uh, put you know, a de decent chunk of capital into Madeiro now. We've hired a CEO uh, and we're really expanding um, uh, into a number of initiatives, which maybe I'll, I'll talk about later if there's more. So I'm just, just curious, and this is, has nothing to do with the podcast, but I'm wondering if the ring came later. Uh, there is uh, uh, so a, a bit of a ring, yes, but I still have not put a nice big diamond on that uh, on that ring, and uh, uh, I only occasionally get teased about it. That's awesome, love it. So I, I'm I'm curious. I just poked around a little bit about you, and I see that you've multiple companies, uh, both U.S. and Canada. Is that right? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, my, my focus has been mostly working with, uh, Canadian companies, but our customer base at Eliacare is, uh, split between Canada, the U S and Australia. It's a little bit in the middle East and a little bit, uh, in Asia, but, um, yeah, I mean, most of the, the companies I've invested in or sit on the board of, uh, happen to be Canadian based. Cool. So just, just really quick, I'm just. I want to get a sense for what it's like doing business in the U.S. versus Canada. Um, and you were going to get into defining what true wealth is, but and these things are going to be pulled into that in a sec. So what, what's your sense? Yeah, so um, one of my favorite uh, sound bites around this, uh, which I feel is, is really descriptive of what it's like when you build a, an innovative solution, you try and introduce it to the market, right? When you approach an early adopter customer in the U.S., the reaction tends to be, oh, can I be first? You approach a prospective customer in Canada and the reaction tends to be, ooh, am I going to be first? And so there's, uh, you know, it's kind of that risk tolerance and ambition. Uh, there is absolutely a cultural difference. You know, obviously that's just a, you know, difference in the mean doesn't describe everyone you're going to find on either side of the border. But um, yeah, uh, there is, in my experience, a big difference in uh, risk tolerance um, north and south of the border. That is so cool. Uh, that just that sort of synopsis. I, I would like to see that as a graphed trend over a hundred years to see how much that remains. Uh, you know, fifteen years from what's the projection like in the U.S. from here? I, I'm I'm just very curious. Well, and look, uh, if one day uh, the Queen is no longer our head of state. Maybe we will accept uh, that Canada has moved into uh, risk tolerance and, uh, you know, a sense of it. But there's like even in the founding and stories of our country, uh, you know, there was a certain ethos to uh, to America and a different ethos. to Totally. Totally. Wait, so when, when you're whether whether it's people you're hiring or people that you are um, investing in or, you know, the people you're going to ha have as partners, what do you look for? in that person? What are kind of the personal traits that you find uh, boost both the company that you're working with or the company that you founded and then boost their own success at the same time? Yeah, so for, um, at, at the stage I'm at in my career now, um, 
it is very important to me to have value alignment and Aliacare is a purpose-driven organization. So uh, we are unified in the ambition to enable the type of care we would want our loved ones to receive. And, uh, you know, in the early days of just trying to survive month to month, you know, with a mobile marketing startup, you know, that was kind of a luxury we couldn't afford, right? We had to make sure we could make the next payroll. Uh, with Aliacare, I have the luxury to say, no, I want to build the business that it has the ability to you know, have the impact in the world that I'm interested in uh, and also you know, satisfy all the financial constraints at the same time. So right now, uh, for me, you know, you, we have to have a value alignment. Um, I really appreciate uh, you know, transparency and um, uh, openness, happy to be disagreed with, happy to debate everything, but uh, you know, let me know where you stand and we'll take it from there. Terry, this is, I, I sense a, I sense a trend. Like I, when we had Mac on not too long ago, this, uh, this idea of we do it if we love it and we're not going to do it to scale or do it for wealth or do it for money, but we do it because we love it. I think that that concept needs to be highlighted more in the business world. Um, so I, I want to, I want to say I love every minute of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> And you're, you're anchoring and making a difference, uh, right? You know, in, in, a, in a category, you have some expertise in a category where you think you can make a difference, which is, you know, those are interesting Venn diagram there, uh, which is important. So I, I do want to get to the, uh, the terms and, yeah. and know how you define true life success. You know, we call it true wealth. Um, how would you define that? Yeah. Um, you know, my mental model around this stuff is... Uh, you know, when you think of the Maslow hierarchy of, uh, of needs, right, at the top is self-actualization. And for me today, uh, you know, or in my life, as it's instantiated right now, um, I'm not doing care because I want to consume the wealth this business is going to create for me, right? Uh, I'm doing it because I think this is what I have to give to the world. And uh, I want to do it to the fullest expression. Um, so uh, I re totally recognize that is a that's a luxury. Like that is true wealth, right? Um, to be able to have all your other needs so satisfied that uh, you can choose to you know express your why uh, in that kind of um, uh, framing. But uh, that's it for me. You know, I want to. Um, you know, be the best I can be at this craft I've chosen. Uh, I want to, I take a lot of pride in creating value for all the stakeholders around me and around Care. And, you know, like with any business, it's the, you know, the, your employees, your customers, your shareholders, and then you can draw it out to society and, you know, a few other concentric circles around that. But uh, I think when entrepreneurship goes best, you know, you are just a nexus for those stakeholders to create value for each other. And, um, you know, my, I've engineered my life into uh, being able to make that my day to day. And so I, I feel pretty fulfilled by it right now. But so let me ask kind of a, a follow-up question about ambition, because I think you've done a very good sort of, you know, take on altruism there and the fact that like, you know, you can 
maybe the more altruistic aspects of our personalities can be aligned with doing things that are good in the world and creating value and providing a service that people want. But I think like obviously part of the reason why we do what we do is also there's this like little personal ambition kind of creature. And how do you see that fitting in? And then how do you see that either being a negative or a positive force in this whole equation? Yeah, no, uh, very good question. In um, uh, So let, let's look at two things. There's, you know, the money side, right? Because I work to get a as high a valuation as possible for a lie care, right? That translates into zeros in a bank account. And I'm playing that game for sure. I'm not, you know, just doing a social enterprise here. That's why I'm uh, asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so by analogy, right, when I play a basketball game, I'm looking at the scoreboard. I enjoy a game of basketball where we're keeping score more than a game of basketball where we're not keeping score. OK, but, you know, you, you have to be in flow which basically means it has to be the right level of challenge. And, you know, there are a whole bunch of things that go along with it. But the uh, uh, I definitely like to win. And in business, one of the ways in which you keep score is, uh, you know, money, right? Whether it's the profit of your business, which we don't happen to make any profit right now in this, you know, weird software as a service game we play. It's not really a prerequisite, but our valuations go up. And, you know, uh, like I said, that that translates into personal wealth. So I do uh, I do care about how you measure success, um, but I don't I look at it as just uh, you have to be immersed enough in a framework to care about winning, just like when you play a basketball game, you have to care about how often this little blown up piece of rubber goes through one hoop over another hoop. It's totally esoteric, but it's, uh, it's part of what makes the, makes the game fun. I, I, I just, I want to, I got to pull on something here. Sorry, Terry. I saw you're going to say something, but, uh, you, you said something there. I'm not going to get the words right, but you're playing the game. Uh, the profits are not existent right now, but you want to make the valuation go up in your next round of valuation so that the money flows into the bank. That is, so let's take WeWork, Uber. You know, there's so many things that have just gathered money, gathered capital from potential resources and are just tanking after the fact. Um, and we have a lot of that in the United States where, where venture capital invests, they do a follow-on investment to increase their own valuations. They increase their valuations. The company never has any hope of making any money. Um, how do right. you square that? But if I can, if I can insert some counterexamples, please. No, I'm Amazon. Great no, no, no. You know, Amazon didn't uh, turn a profit for a decade. Right. Salesforce didn't right. turn a profit for a decade. Go ahead and think of anything you want and figure out how that's going to show up on your doorstep tomorrow. And, uh, you know, Amazon did create value and, uh, yeah, they used an over an over eager capital market right. to realize, you know, a global next day supply chain business in 10 years instead of a hundred years. Um, and okay, you'll have some examples where it didn't work out, but to me, that's not a reason to say, okay, well, you know, don't get in the game of deploying capital to chase big opportunities aggressively. Well said, well said. 
Um, I actually hadn't finished with ambition because <laughs> I think you answered. <laughs> I don't think I even let Jonathan finish his question. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> this is going to be a pleasure for viewers. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Adrian. It's the Mindful Wealth Podcast. <laughs> um, but so you know, I think you said a lot of, uh, uh, you know, about uh, the positive aspects of ambition. I'm sure that you have the opportunity to witness uh, places at which there's kind of a negative flip side to that. I wonder if you could, you know, tell me kind of what you see at the level at which you're operating. Yeah. So there is suffering, but or at least the potential for suffering associated with any desire, right? I mean, uh, I don't have to tell you guys that. Um, and I have suffered uh, plenty of times in this, you know, seven-year Aliyakir jersey uh, journey. So, you know, again, I come back to this notion of flow, right? If, uh, I would like to be on the edge of my skis, right? It's, if I'm going to ski, if I like, if I'm going to get up and go ski down a friggin' hill every day. Uh, I want to do that as best I can. And for at least the way my personality is constructed, that means like, you know, finding your limits. And so, okay, when you're right on the edge of your skis, like sometimes you're going to fall. Okay. Could you ski in such a way that you never fall? Yeah. Would that make me want to get up every day and go skiing? No. So uh, I've plenty of times had phases of being overextended or I would wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, how am I going to close this circle? Well, I've promised this to these customers. You know, I can't ask my employees to do anything more. Uh, you know, I promised these things to my investors. This is all going to run out before we, you know, spin up to the next level of this thing. And uh, definite suffering associated with that. If there was no ambition, I would have avoided that suffering. But I'm just finding my flow state. And uh, if I, you know, if I skied and never fell, I'd just be bored of skiing. So um, uh, the goal for me is not no suffering. It's, you know, be in flow, be, you know, which is kind of like fully realize your full potential, self-actualize, you know, however you want to uh, talk about it. But um, at least to me, that's how uh, I'm okay with uh, the dark side of ambition. Mm -hmm. It's so funny because this really, uh, Jonathan really echoes like our last show with uh, Arno, um, who's actually like a, a warriorship mindset person. And, you know, one of the things he talks about is specifically that humans are constantly seeking comfort, but that in order to grow, we have to be constantly getting out of the comfort zone. And then how do you sort of manage the difference between those two things? And, you know, he has his own methodology around that, but it sounds exactly, you know, your, your metaphor of being on the edge of your skis is it's exactly that really. Yeah. I mean, the lack of mean, uh, a, a, a life where I'm not invested in the meaning of what I'm doing is just so worse a type of suffering for me than sometimes getting my ass kicked uh, by by whatever I'm trying to succeed at. I want to I want to touch. There's a couple things that are that are pulling at me right now. One one of them is, and I realize I have two people from one family, so we can talk about starting point. Like I think it's it's a privilege to be able to demand from life that you get to focus on something that gives, you know, fulfills passions and that is give back to the world. That's, that's a huge privilege. Um, and the fact that you're in Canada and I'm in the U S there's a little bit of a difference there culturally as well. In other words, here we don't, and I don't know the systems in Canada as well, 
But here, if you try something big and fail, there isn't a safety net. Like there isn't something to pick you up. What is in Canada? And can you just speak to that starting point a little bit? So if I can just elaborate on the starting point a little bit. Um, So both of our parents are immigrants, moved here from uh, Austria and South Africa, and from two pretty different backgrounds, right? You know, our father grew up in post-war Austria. You know, his father's greatest ambition for him was that he would get a civil service job uh, because that would be stable income for his whole life. Okay. Uh, you know, my mother grew up in or was born in Namibia, grew up her, her father was a bit of a fanatic, but, um, you know, accumulated some wealth and she ran away from that. Okay. So then they met in, in Montreal in the, I guess, late uh, seven, yeah, 70s, mid, mid 70s. 70s. Thank you. <laughs> in the mid seventies. And uh, yeah, so they built our life, their life in Canada but we're not a you know, 12th generation Canadian. So I think we've taken some things from our family history and some things from our cultural context. Um, I would say the, you know, the ambition and the uh, success drive uh, was very much something we picked up around the dinner table. Um, whereas the, I don't even know if altruism is, is the right word for it, but um, you know, in Canada, we have a pretty functional society and uh, <laughs> don't take the reverse saying? of that, but what but are you saying? The social there, contract Adrian? is very much, uh, uh, very much in place. Yeah. I am a very happy taxpayer. Yeah. Very happy. It's that when I look at the marginal benefit of that dollar of wealth uh, for me versus for society, it's like obvious to me. Okay. Take 50 cents of the incremental dollar and reinvested in society. It's not a, you know, that, that, that just makes sense to me. So um, I don't know if that is a cultural difference. Certainly Canada is not a homogenous place. You know, uh, yeah, Alberta is the Texas of Canada. You have everything up and down the political spectrum here too. But uh, I think there might be a little more of that, you know, the social contract is still really in place uh, here in Canada. Not that everybody loves the government, doesn't think there's waste here, there, and and wherever. But um, in general, I would say uh, we feel like we get out what we put in uh, for for our social contract. Yeah, okay. Um, And so I guess if if we were to ask something else about sort of the external markers of success, I think you you answered some of this earlier when you talked about, you know, like the analogy of making money with basketball. but let's say we wanted to reconcile playing that game with everything else in life, because it's one thing to run a kind of successful business in which you're looking at certain metrics, put something of value into the world that's making the world a better place. But then how do you sort of reconcile that with your own well-being, your own maybe spiritual practice? How do you marry that with a fulfilling personal experience? So I'm not going to try and do a prescription for everyone, but I'll tell you about what works for me. Um, so I mentioned this aspect of, you know, wanting to, uh, to have the right amount of challenge. Um, it's important to me to have meaning in what I do. And that's not just about winning. It's also, does it align? Do I have integrity? Does it align with everything else uh, I believe in? And that's where, you know, I, I, it's, it's such a joy to watch 
you know, and like a new immigrant come to Canada, start working at Alaya Care, you know, six years later, they've had their second kid, they bought their house, they, you know, uh, they've, they've just living out uh, a fantastic dream, they've, you know, more than doubled their, their income, and, you know, that's just um, meaningful to me, but well, I think it's meaningful to anybody, but, uh, you know, that's important, and then our end market, the extent to which we succeed is the extent to which our society manages to care for frail and elderly uh, in, a, in their home in a more human way, uh, you know, and uh, so there's, there's a lot of positive in this situation I put myself in uh, with Alaya Care. Um, I'm not sure if that answered the question. Yeah, no, um, I, I think it did. I wonder if I could just poke it in the direction of like maybe a bit more personal, you know? Personal, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so the pillars of my life that, you know, help me be a whole person. Um, my work life, in the ideal scenario, it feels like a hobby. Um, then uh, I need a certain amount of sports in my life. Uh, I'll be, I'd be miserable without it. Uh, I have a preference for team sports and a preference for competitive sports. Um, again, maybe how I'm wired, maybe how I, I was raised, but uh, I need that to be in balance. I need my family life to be fulfilling. I've got a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, uh, you know, and everything that goes along with having a young family there. So uh, the extent to which I can keep that in balance and all the relationships uh, flourishing is important. And then um, I also uh, think it's, you know, as a middle-aged man here, you can get into ruts that can suck. And uh, I found a really good tool to get out of the ruts is to go do a psychedelic retreat once a quarter, a couple times a year, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, sure, it's a shortcut to something maybe I could accomplish with a daily meditation practice in years or whatever. But uh, for me, that's just been like an amazing tool to get the get the um, put some powder back on the slopes. Um, you know, if we stick with that uh, skiing analogy. Wow. So now that you brought it, I, I, I'm not going to touch the psychedelic retreat uh, yet. Uh, however, I want to talk about the kids and the lesson you actually talked about moments ago. That is you, when you're skiing, I'm, I'm assuming the kids ski at this point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so when you're skiing and you're pushing it, because, you know, it's not worth not pushing it. Um, do you tell them they come, hey, dad, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't wreck today. Did you say, well, you're not skiing hard enough? Do you actually give them that kind of uh, advice and that kind of push? Yeah, I, uh, I talk about it as... And anytime they have a fall, let's say, and then some aversion to doing that thing again, uh, my first reaction is, amazing, Damien, you found your limit. That's great. Now you know where that limit is. And, uh, you know, oh, but by the way, that's going to keep moving. You're going to have to test it again in a little while. But, you know, it's not bad that you, you fell. It's good that you found that limit. And uh, so... I'm, I find myself more often encouraging the other side of that, which is, you know, take every knock into a growth opportunity um, and, and have a growth mindset on stuff. Uh, in my particular case, um, my son definitely doesn't need encouragement to take risks. 
my uh, my daughter does sometimes, and uh, in the dynamic of our household, you know, I'm the guy who's trying to get her up on the rock to jump into the lake, and uh, I think. Like, I really want to encode those experiences of being afraid of something, doing it anyway, feeling good about having overcome it and, uh, you know, and, and repeat. So as, as an adult and you're still pushing it with them and you're, you know, you got to slow it down a little bit so they can keep up, I guess. Um, do you also wreck in front of them and how do they respond to that? Uh, yeah. I okay, do good. sometimes. And, uh, I, yeah, I, I try to just mirror what I'm, what I'm, uh, trying to coach them into. Uh, so yeah, for sure. I, uh, so I'm still in this glorious phase where my kids think, uh, you know, I can do no wrong. <laughs> that, uh, I'm a super, superhuman. So I'm just letting the reality creep into their, uh, <laughs> their understanding of the world bit by bit, but, uh, but yeah. Well, hang on. I think we might also just say, I'm not sure that Adrian's yet aware that he's not superhuman. <laughs> Fair. Fair enough. My, mine are 16 and 13. And so I just, I just challenged my 16-year-old, this is probably three weeks ago, to a foot race up a hill. I'm almost 50. Boy, did I lose that one entirely. Like, it was embarrassing. So I'm, I'm past that. Good luck to you in the future. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, I... <laughs> I definitely realize I'm in, uh, you know, maybe the last phase of this being able to hold on to. Uh. <laughs> so fun, though. So fun. Yeah. Um, so I, go ahead. Yeah. Go, no, go ahead, Jonathan. I was just going to say, if you know, we're we're kind of we're kind of coming in here uh, to about uh, a couple interesting questions, I think. And I don't know where you'd place this. If you'd place this, you know, in your experience in Canada, if you were a king or queen for a day, what one rule would you change, you know, or put into place? And who would that benefit? And then why would you do it? Just one, Don't not six, just one. I mean, and in the political domain, in the... Uh, business domain, politics domain, wh whichever. What one rule do you think makes a, would make a difference for our you know, global well-being? Unless you want to go for personal benefit, then you can change that rule too. No, 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 no. I, uh... Uh, it's a good one. Um, and again, I'm trying to answer if I'm king of the world, not if I'm an omnipotent uh, superpower. But, you know, I think one thing that uh, uh, we could would really benefit our societies is if we unbundled the running of the government from moral decisions, like why are low taxes and abortion you know, or pro-life associated things. What I would do is go direct democracy on uh, moral issues and representational democracy for how to actually run this thing. And I think if we did that, uh, it would really help our societies say, okay, well, my uh, moral, you know, my, uh, these, these strict kind of moral things, I can, they're just plebiscite, you know, whatever the majority says, like, okay, that'll work. But when it comes to actually running a government that helps do the fundamental things of government, I'm just going to vote for the most competent person. And I think that unbundling, uh, which I feel like you can do now, I mean, you can pull your populace for their opinion on stuff in a pretty friction-free way today on their smartphones. Like we haven't really rethought 
how that uh, how you mix direct democracy and representational democracy and unbundle um, uh, you know some of the things that end up bundled together in government. So I think that's one tweak. If you did that, uh, there's a chance you would have uh, kind of some much better outcomes in many different domains. Who would who would be the biggest beneficiaries and who would bear the most cost in that? Well, I think the uh, uh, who would bear the most cost would be the uh, the I don't want to call it the political class, but the you know the established power structures, right? That leverage, you know, a set of moral uh, uh, tendencies of various groups to drive through agendas that often are counterproductive for those groups. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to call out specific <laughs> political parties or anything like that, or, uh, but I think that would be a net, a net uh, like they would lose from this new <laughs> Adrian rule for the world. And I think uh, the people in general would win uh, because they would have a much more direct way to um, have the society they want, but then also have a society that works well to deliver, you know, kind of the, the things they care about. I applaud the thought. I don't, I don't know. I don't know about implementation, but I applaud the thought. Yeah. Well, that's why you made me King for a day. <laughs> I might have to extend that mandate uh, for a few, a few weeks, but uh, anyway, that's what I would do. Um, let me ask you another question sort of about the, you know, the pra the practice of wealth or the practice of financial freedom. As you observe what people do, do you notice that there are kind of self-defeating behaviors? Like, do you notice something that where people tend to get in their only in their own way as they pursue these kind of things? Yeah, uh, yeah. There are different prescriptions at different phases of wealth, but uh, one of the biggest distortions I see is just how people see money. It's like, oh, there's this kind of money, there's that kind of money. Oh, I view my you know, wealth this way and income that way. And, uh, you know, oh, there's this money that's, you know, at the end of the day, once you have, like, it's very well known, the decorrelation of wealth and happiness over whatever it is, 80 grand a year or something of household income. So uh, after that, uh, for me, you know, wealth is potential energy. Just think about it that way. It's, uh, you know, it's you just store up. You have to create some value to get the money or ideally there's all sorts of grifts and whatever, but in the ideal world, you create some value. So you accumulate some wealth. That wealth is potential energy that can then be deployed to accomplish something. And I think, you know, very quickly you run out of ways to turn money into happiness through your own consumption. So then after that, it's like, oh, I've got this potential energy that I created in some other domain, what do I want to do with it? And that's where, you know, for me, Madeiro is, is a super fulfilling. It's, I don't want to be on some, or I don't really care about the leaderboard of, you know, how many, what are you going to die with in your bank account? But I do care and not in a fully altruistic way of, you know, the impact we're going to have on, uh, uh, on people through the activities of that. But you know, if you're truly self-aware, I think it's like, yeah, you're really just chasing recognition and, uh, you know, admiration of your peers and whatever it is. And so um, that's a that's a great way to think of like if you, if you conceive of money the right way, 
then decisions like that just kind of pop out, no friction, and they're in balance with everything else in your life. So uh, that that's part of my my recipe there. If if uh, so, you've you've experienced quite a bit of success, um, and you maybe that's background, maybe that's your own drive, all those things combined. What would you say to somebody that is listening to this podcast, going, "Well, he could do it because he's so lucky. He had this, he had that, he had this." What are some of the concrete things they can do or any any individual can do to actually improve their own circumstances and outcomes? I mean, there's no doubt. I had plenty good starting uh, spots in this race and I also had plenty of luck. So, um, but what I think is, uh, I won't say is universally good advice, but for people who want to be on an entrepreneurial journey, what I think is universally good advice is don't overthink it. Don't end up in analysis paralysis. If you want to do something, you just have to start doing it and you'll figure out what's really important to success. Once you're in it uh, to think you can, you know, sit and build the perfect business plan or design the perfect product or assemble the perfect team. It's like, no, you know, pick something you care about, pick a space that, you know, ideally is growing and not shrinking and, uh, you know, maybe pick some people you want to work with on that journey, start and the rest, uh, the rest will come. Um, that that's probably my number one piece of advice for anyone who wants to be on a, or start an entrepreneurial journey. Okay. There is a, um, there's an analogy that I wanted to use with Arno that I wasn't able to, that, that is apt right now. And that is, when you're rock climbing, you know, if you get up two additional inches, suddenly you have new holds you didn't know were there. So the idea of starting and getting in motion, starting with action and not worrying about thinking too much about it, but you act, then suddenly opportunities arise. Then you act some more, you learn some, and then suddenly more opportunities arise. That's really important. That's a really, that's a really good tip, I think, and apply for a lot of folks. So thanks, Adrian. Yeah. Okay. Well, Adrian, I don't know. Is there anything else you would like to add? Because that kind of brings us to the end of the questions that we had lined up for you today. No, I think uh, I think I'm good. Can I see a cut before you uh, publish it? <laughs> nope, that's not how it works. <laughs> oh, really? All right. No, no, no. Absolutely, no. If you want to see it, absolutely, you can. Um, and uh, can you also just tell us if there's any way that people want to learn more about what you do or connect with you? What would be the best way to do that? So if you're curious about AliCare, uh, check out AliCare.com, uh, Madeiro.org as uh, URL for, uh, from the Madeiro Fund. And uh, probably best way to get me is, uh, is on LinkedIn, uh, Adrian Shower. Uh, you'll find me, drop me a note, uh, send me a connection request. Look forward to, to chatting. Okay, well, Adrian, this has been a pleasure. I know we get to talk around the dinner table often enough, <laughs> but it's really cool to have you on the podcast. Yeah, cool. Yeah, nice Thanks to meet you. having me. All right. All right. Talk to you guys later.